0: Good evening. Let's um, let's pray before we uh, before we start looking into things tonight. Lord God, thank you for um, just your providence in in uh, all of the things that are prepared, Lord, and in the way that you speak to different hearts, Lord, and I thank you just for the worship time we've had there, Lord. That um, this is precisely what we want for tonight, Lord, not to to set out, to tear things down, Lord, but to lift you up and, um, and to see you glorified in this place. And so I pray that that would be, um, as we're students of the scripture, Lord, as we study um, primarily what your word has to say, Lord, as opposed to what others have to say, Lord, that you'd speak to us through it and, um, and help us to be wise. That's this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, so over the course of a few evening services... Um, We'll be looking at the question, and I, I've taken a long time. Every time Andrew asked us, I seem to have something else to say, um, which is how should the Christian respond to the cults as opposed to kind of all sorts of other types we could have. And so I'm hoping that tonight will serve as a, a bit of an introduction um, and a bit of a fundamentals focus and kind of laying the groundwork for the other sort of two parts that we'll look at. And then the other two, um, I'd like to sort of drill down into some of the specifics of uh, perhaps the two most likely groups that we'll encounter. Um, which, was, which would be Jehovah's Witnesses and, and perhaps Mormons as well. Though I'm happy to discuss others, and, uh, and no doubt there'll be things that'll um, come up that'll certainly question, you know, Catholicism, Islam, all sorts of things as well. But I'm framing it as a bit of a study, um, because I feel that's the best way to kind of uh, to cover it. So I thought it was helpful to give a little bit of a testimony at the start, because it, it might be a bit of a, a unique uh, study um, to put the th- everything into context. Now, if you've spoken to me about spiritual matters in the past and, and um, in the last few years in particular, you might have noticed I've got a particular thing about this question. Um, how should the Christian respond to the cults? And um, if I'm being open and honest from the start, it's something that I have to keep of myself in check um, when it comes to digging deep. And that uh, well, I mean like deep, really deep, 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 deep. Um, into questions like this one, because I've always, always been fascinated by what people believe and why they believe it, it's just appeared inside and in-built somewhere, and so um, you know, I always want to know why do people that you made wholeheartedly believe things that I don't. Um, and it started out with my teens, I was obsessed with sort of creation evolution for a, a long time, um, and tried to turn over all the stones on that one, and then it became like philosophy in my 20s for a while, and all sorts of questions about agnosticism, and what you can know, and what you can't. Um, and I've even delved into like wacky fringe stuff, like why people believe in a flat earth and stuff like that. Um, but in the last three or four years, it's sort of been the cults for a while uh, and looking at their origins and their founders and what they believe and, and just trying to understand, because it might seem really wacky on the surface, like why is it that people are genuinely persuaded that it's true? So um, background of like watching documentaries and history and, and um, debates and reading Christian books, but most importantly, reading scripture to try and understand um, what we should sort of have to say about it. Why does it, you know, it doesn't make sense to me when you first look at people's beliefs sometimes, but why do they hold to them like really sincerely? But the question we've got to ask ourselves as we start down this road is, what does it really profit our spiritual walk with Christ to study all of that stuff and not spend that time um, grounding ourselves in scripture and actually growing our faith in the truth? Um, Our desire as we study these things should be to grow in the knowledge and our love of Christ um, as opposed to like being right or trying to prove somebody else wrong. And so that's why the question is, how should we respond as opposed to like, why is everybody else wrong and, and why are we right about this? Um, because I don't think it would be spiritually healthy to spend sort of three-step studies just picking stuff apart. And so what I'm hoping we'll do, which is a little bit like what Sally was touching on there, is to, is to set our course on knowing Jesus better through his words. And in the light of that, hopefully that will graciously expose false teaching and at the end of the day, if we truly believe that what we've got here in the scriptures is, uh, is true, then there's nothing to be feared from turning over every stone in search of the truth and um, an understanding that actually anyone who doesn't have the truth is wrapped up in a spiritual blindness. Um, and how do we try to love them? Um, so tonight we'll establish who Jesus is in scripture and, um, and the one common denominator of the cults, which is a different Jesus. And we'll also look at briefly... At the other fundamental issue, which will kind of set the scene for the other studies, which is um, a language barrier that we face when we try to speak to people um, wrapped up in cult theology. So, as a structure, I'm borrowing from a book called The Kingdom of the Cults, which sounds like dodgy as anything from the title, um, but it's a really good overview. It's by a guy called Walter Martin, who's died now, but uh, it's a very good overview, and I've kind of done a lot of study in there. So, here's what we're going to read for the first point tonight, which is on the first slide, actually. Um, the first point tonight is false Christ can't save, and so I was sort of, main focus will be on this passage in 2 Corinthians 11, 1-4, which is entitled Paul and the False Apostles, and it says, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. And that's the point that I want to get at that up there, which is false Christ can't save what's the biblical reason for making that statement? Because on the surface, it's a very confrontational thing to say to somebody. But if we really want to love anyone who's blinded um, within the cult, we need to talk plainly and truthfully into their blindness. Now, as far as the the rest of the context of that passage goes, um, we know that Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and he was establishing the truth of his own teaching, as well as imploring the church to hold true to the gospel and the teaching of the apostles. Because the church in Corinth had received truth, um, they had the revelation of the Old Testament to look at, and they had the teaching of the apostles, and Paul's determined that they should uh, be presented to Christ as pure and prepared for his coming. But that key little bit in the middle, just as Eve was deceived um, by the serpent, his fear is that their minds might be tricked or gently led astray from that truth. I know at this point that the accusation isn't that they're flagrantly disregarding everything and throwing out the window and chasing falsehoods outright. But the concern is that like Eve in Genesis, that they'd be deceived and end up pursuing a lie, whether they realized it or not. So briefly, what did the serpent say to Eve? Very familiar passage, um, but so important for laying the groundwork for the studies. So in Genesis 3, 1 to 6, these are the words. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch uh, touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Verse 1. Did God really see? The very first words out of the serpent's mouth. And there it is. Do you really need to take this seriously? And are you sure that that's God, God when, uh, God, what God meant when he said that. And generally speaking, from what I can gather, that's the crux of what most of the cults will start with. Did God really say this bit of the word or that bit of the word? It's a lot more subtle than we might think as a starting point. And it's the deception that threatens all of us in our devotion to Jesus, no matter what walk of life we're in, it's always the danger. Did God really say? And it's the same question in the church that might lead believers to affirm all kinds of relationships. It's the deception that leads Christians to deny the existence of hell. It's the deception that believers might use to justify behaviors that they know are not right. Did God really see it? And redefining what God said is what sends millions of people astray every year, even within the church. So it's not something that we should consider as just, you know, the people out there, but a question for us as well. So why is it relevant to the cults then? And back to Paul. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. As soon as we disregard the least bit of God's words, if we take this revelation of God and put it aside and say, well, maybe not that bit, we've not only strayed from just what the word says, but who he is and who he tells us he is in scripture. And so that means to edit out the scriptures we don't want is actually to invent our own God it's idolatry if we take out the words of Jesus in his teaching we've invented a different Jesus if we profess that the spirit is speaking a message to us that contradicts what God has already said in his revealed words then we're inventing a different spirit and right at the heart of the cults that we look at is a distortion of who Jesus is and an addition of things that you need to do to be saved in every context and cult that I've studied is the same and so the fundamental at the heart of that, from what I can see, is that the gospel of whatever other Jesus is set up can't save. And that should be heartbreaking for us. And if you read Paul's words onwards from where we've looked at there, um, his heart is really clearly hurting um, as he implores the church to accept the truth that's been passed on to them. His heart is thinking, he doesn't do it just to show off his credentials and show that his teaching's the best, but he's worried that their deception is is going to lead to a generation of believers who don't know the real God of Scripture, don't know the real Christ and the true gospel. And so with those verses from Paul, uh, ringing in our ears, laying that groundwork, hopefully we can uh, overview some of the false Christs that we might encounter. And that's where the next slide comes in, Daniel. Um, And I thought it was, I know there's a a bit of an overload of information going to come up on there, but don't feel like you've got to hold on to everything. It's just so we get the, the picture. So Jehovah's Witnesses to begin with, Um, identify Jesus not as God incarnate, um, denying that God became flesh and lived among us, um, but as Michael the archangel. And in their theology, the verses that tell us that Jesus is the only begotten son uh, doesn't mean unique, one-of-a-kind, the way it's always been historically understood by the church, um, but literally means the only being God created and that everything else was created after that. So through Jesus, everything's created, but Jesus was the first created being. So they believe he's the archangel michael not god by nature in their theology jesus is in to god and is created by god and witnesses don't worship jesus as a result and point of verses like when jesus says the father is greater than i um as a theological statement about jesus nature uh, rather than an ordered trinity so if you delve into jehovah's witness sources um, it's important to see this subtle mistranslation of texts that uh, just adds to the issue. And I don't want to go too much into that tonight, but we'll look at it in future. Um, but do see that as a shameless plug to kind of see a little bit more from, from where they're coming from and why, what they've changed. But do understand that uh, the New World translation they use will literally, in some cases, just say something else entirely. And that's why it can be difficult when you're reading what the Bible says about Jesus to actually get through the deception and, and reach somebody. Now, as for Mormon theology, frighteningly goes even further afield um, because Jesus for Mormons is one of three gods of this world, three different and distinct gods, which is Heavenly Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit. And um, Mormons believe that Heavenly Father and Jesus, two different gods, as I've said, have physical being the same way we do. Um, and one of their quotes is that it's a body of, blo- a body of bones and flesh as tangible as man's. And in fact, they believe that Heavenly Father was once a man like us, and that through goodness he progressed to become God. Um, More on this when we look at at Mormons another night. So Jesus then, according to Mormons, is not eternally God. Jesus, they believe, is a literal literal physical child of Heavenly Father and a spirit wife, of which he has many. Um, And they speculate about how that might happen. And I'm sure you find it quite shocking to hear just how far away um, from scriptural understanding, that is. And I don't know if I've mentioned it on there yet, that uh, they believe Jesus is Lucifer's brother um, as opposed to um, only begotten. So, Jesus, in their theology, came as fully man and inherited Godhood from Heavenly Father, so that He was also at God. And that, that it was through His obedience that He was elevated to the position of uh, of, Heavenly, of His position with Heavenly Father. So, um, perhaps the core of it really is seeing that as a Jesus who's not eternally God who changes over time, and that's consistent with Mormon teaching that God changes over time as well, that he was not eternally or exclusively God, but one, rather one of countless gods um, in the universe. So while both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons um, read the Gospels and revere Jesus as essential in salvation, they both deny that God is incarnate in the way that the church is historically taught. That's enough of that. <laughs> Um, But for now, I can summarize the problem um, shared by both of those groups with one simple question, which is, is Jesus in very nature God? Now, since both of them deny that uh, Jesus is God in slightly different ways, I hope that the scriptures we look at just now clarify the issue. And it's significant because if you speak to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, they do affirm that scripture is given by God. um, So there's no better way to speak to them than to use the scriptures that they do. As true. So this slide here, and I again I apologise. What I will say is that I'm happy to share the slides if anyone would like to review them later. Um, I thought to put the best way to address this is to pull together some proof texts from the Old Testament, but um, what, what can we do to, to try and most effectively counter um, what is said? And I think these examples are particularly powerful um, because they're interpreted by Scripture itself later in the Bible and applied to Jesus. So while someone might say, oh, well, you're just misinterpreting or misusing a scripture, it's a lot harder when the New Testament quotes the verses um, and points directly to Jesus. You can't dismiss the scripture's own hyperlinks, um, whereas it is easy to twist one verse out of context. So you might already be adept at quoting all of this, um, but let's quickly spell them out. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway. Our God. Now, this verse is applied in John 1.23 to John the Baptist's announcement of Jesus, signalling quite simply that Jesus, the coming one, is Lord. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign, the Virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which you'll all know, God with us. And that verse can't be contested again because it's quoted in Matthew 1.23 and applied specifically to Jesus' birth. God with us, not our God with us. And the Lord speaks in Zechariah 12.10, this is the Lord Yahweh speaking, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. A verse that speaks obviously about the manner of Jesus' crucifixion, and since it's God himself who's speaking in this verse, it can only be fulfilled if God himself is pierced by men. And perhaps the best place to, to see them applied is in revelation 1 7 when it says look he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him so shall it be amen jesus is lord the scripture consistently takes the time to quote in context to make sure the message of the old testament running through isn't missed but New Testament, briefly, uh, gives plenty of examples of Jesus' deity too. And so I will move in on to the next little slide. I promise you this is the last one in terms of heavy, lots of info. I'm not going to start even at John 1, where you might expect, because though it's profound when it's used properly, um, we'll see in a future evening it's been absolutely butchered in the New World Translation. And so it's ineffective when you're actually speaking to witnesses about it. Jesus normally used the declared name of the Lord in the Old Testament. John 8 58 to 59. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, it's often said that the best uh, evidence that Jesus meant what it sounded like he meant was the reaction of the crowd. And I think that that's true. And looking further into John, we can see how Jesus' own words were interpreted by the people when he spelled out his divine nature. He couldn't be clearer in indicating his equality with God in John 10 when he says, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. I was kind of reflecting on that a little bit and thinking, um, how easy would it have been if Jesus was concerned that they were getting the wrong end of the stick? Um, would it have been easy for Jesus to say, Stop, just stop for a second. No, no, wait, you've got it all wrong. Put the stones down. What I really meant was and tell him what's something else but he doesn't deny it does he in the gospels he doesn't deny it when he's uh, confronted and there's cam- countless examples uh, in the epistles declaring jesus glory uh, so much articulated better than i could do it justice but i'll read colossians 1 15 to 20 where i've picked out just two morsels on screen um for this glorious passage it says the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for in him all things were created Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. <laughs> I don't breathe for a second. Now, I'm sorry that in the time that we've got uh, tonight, I've managed to include both far too much scripture to digest in one sitting. And, and yet at the same time, nowhere near enough to do justice to Jesus' glory and his nature. And I thought, well, what a conundrum it is, but you don't want to overdo it and, and make it impossible to take anything away. But I hope it's clear from the Bible um, that Jesus is categorically not declared to be a created being. He's categorically not inferior to the Father in nature. Not Michael the archangel, not one of many gods, but is co-equal and co-eternal almighty God. And we could lead into that a study of the Trinity, but I thought we'd better stick to the, the task in hand. We uh, return to that verse. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus, other than the Jesus we preached... Or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. And so the message for us is dead simple. Don't put up with another Jesus. And I'm going to lighten it with a very simple illustration that I hope um, will be helpful. It came to me while I was thinking about this and it kind of concludes the point. I don't know if you've ever been part of a, a tourist group in another foreign city or somewhere full of people. The kind of place where you, you have to have some help to get around and navigate um, so you join one of those really annoying tour groups and um, where there's a guide who's got like a little flag um, and makes everyone wear like matching caps or matching t-shirts or something like that now we once visited um the blue john cavern in the peak district i don't know if anyone's ever been before but it's this massive cave um where well basically we followed a lady with a little blue flag or something like that in what was quite a dark and scary place to end up lost by yourself massive cave now as you tour around you're sort of bumping into people on the way and um and you're trying to see where you're going and it's quite difficult and everything's a bit slippy and stuff anyway and there's other tour groups that are also getting in your way and some of them have got little flags and caps and t-shirts as well and uh, rachel couldn't care less about uh, rocks and caves and stuff well it's a little bit more nowadays but not then um, so you've got to watch her anyway because she could get lost very, very easily, not paying attention. And, um, and in the midst of all that, it's very easy to lose sight of where you're supposed to be going, following your tour guide and their little blue flag or whatever it is they're carrying. Nobody wants to end up lost in a cave on their own. And you don't want to end up following the wrong tour guide down the wrong cavern either. Because they might look like your tour guide and they might have a little flag like your tour guide and uh, they might have the same Yorkshire accent as your tour guide. Um, but i couldn't care less where they're going because i'm here for like an hour or something like that and then i want to be out um so i'm focused on bumping my way through the crowd to make sure i stick safely with my two guide till i'm out of the other side you can probably see where i'm going with that because how much more significant is it to follow the right jesus in a dark world because the jesus of the cult will probably say some of the same words he might have churches and banners with the same inspiring quotes on the side and he might be followed by millions and millions of people. He might even look the same in their little pictures and their visions and all sorts of things. But if we come across a Jesus that doesn't match up with the plain reading of scripture that we've seen tonight, if he's been misinterpreted or retranslated or reinterpreted, I don't care where that Jesus is going. That Jesus can't safely lead you out on the other side of this dark world, and that Jesus can't save. And so the gospel is 100% clear That God's salvation plan was fixed, as we've sung already, on the death and the resurrection of God himself. It was the only way to restore man to the Father, for the saviour to be fully man and fully God. Not partly God or a God or an archangel. It was God's plan from the beginning that Jesus himself would be the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so I hope that, you know, holding on there everything we've talked about there tonight... And having, um, it, well, having a, a solid knowledge of all of the things we've thought of and what they believe and everything else is not important, really. But having a firm foundation for knowing the true Christ is really, really important. And so what I wanted to do in all of that was to emphasize that knowing what the groups believe isn't really necessary, but desiring to know Jesus and know why we believe what we believe and love him is truly the most important thing we can do. And knowing why that matters is enough to show, shine a light when the opportunity comes And keep us on steady ground. So, turning to the second and much shorter focus tonight, because all of that might seem sort of straightforward and easy enough. Um, But before we do the future evenings and maybe drill down into some details, um, we also need to acknowledge the other fundamental issue, which is that while false Christs might be easily identified, there's a language barrier um, that makes it much, much harder. And so, the second and last one is beware the language barrier. This is the last slide. There's nothing else to like bombard you with. But let these verses that I've got there be in your mind as, uh, as we look at this point. And this is where the rest of the verse from Paul about putting up with a different gospel is uh, relevant. Now, I'd be surprised if this hasn't happened to you or it doesn't happen at some point. You get a knock at the door, and it's a Jehovah's Witness, and, uh, and you have an initial polite greeting. I don't know, maybe you don't give them a polite greeting. Maybe you just tell them to get lost. I don't know. Um, but you have an initial polite greeting, and you feel like it's an opportunity um, to speak some truth to this person, to shine some light. So graciously, you listen for a little while, and they ask a series of questions to establish where they think you're at. But what happens is that while they're talking to you, you actually find yourself sort of nodding along to most of what they say. And in fact, it feels like the purpose of the conversation is all about finding agreement as much as possible, at least as a start point. And when you try to share something scriptural... They nod along wholeheartedly in agreement and somehow you get to the end and think that you've talked for ages and you've talked about nothing significant or meaningful, nothing communication of ideas occurred. Whatever you said just didn't sink to land. And the problem that we've got here is that the vocabulary of the quotes is different uh, to the vocabulary that we get in the Bible. And so I remember a fruitless and very long conversation with a gentleman at my door a few years back, um, which could have been quite fruitful maybe if I'd known the concept I was trying to share were perfectly acceptable to him in words alone. Um, they just meant totally different things to me and the guy that I was speaking to. And so let me share a trivial example. Now, in English, if I said, uh, do you like tuna? Um, some people here might say yes, some people might say no. Um, and I'm frightened now because I've got Spanish speakers in the audience. But if, in Spanish, if I said, tell gusta el tuna... Um, the word tuna means cactus. So I could talk to, say, Carlos, maybe when he first came, I'm sure he knows enough now, and have a really great conversation and perhaps think, oh, we really have a lot in common. And I'm thinking, oh, he's really into fish the same as me, and he's actually sharing a love of you know, desert plant varieties. Um, and we could have this really meaningful exchange, but actually in our heads it sounds great, but there's nothing actually exchanged at all. And when you tell a Jehovah's Witnesses or a Mormon, or indeed many other groups, uh, that you believe that salvation comes by grace through faith, most of them will happily agree with you. But what you mean by grace and what they mean by grace is as different as tuna and cactus. And so in The Kingdom of the Cults, the book that I mentioned before, the author suggests that most cult followers at your door will begin by talking about the following and see if this matches your own experience. They'll speak extensively about love They'll speak extensively about tolerance and extensively about forgiveness. And they'll talk about the Sermon on the Mount quite a lot. And um, speaking about these things, these topics, allow the person to tell the Christian that we really agree. And regardless of our definitions in terms, we'll all agree that God is loving. We'll all agree that Jesus came for a purpose, with a mission. And we'll all agree that forgiveness is important from God to us and from us to other people. And we need to understand that that confusing level of agreements, not by random chance. Witnesses and Mormons are on mission, and they're expected to study uh, continually. to prepare to speak to people. So they'll know this stuff like the back of their hand. And they'll know what you're probably going to say, even if they don't really understand the gospel themselves. And so says what Martin in this book, you're much less likely to hear about. The necessity for Christ's atonement for sin on the cross, and God's grace and the gift of faith. And there's no coincidence there neither. Because if we truly believe we're in a battle against spiritual deception and that our spiritual enemies determine to blind, then we should expect blind people to avoid the core of the gospel when they talk to us. We should expect that the concept of personal sin, that the concept of being utterly deserving of condemnation with no hope at all of achieving salvation ourselves, that, that that's going to be missing in the conversations We should expect that the necessity of the cross is our only hope of forgiveness. That's going to be missing in our conversations. And we should expect that the concept of grace as God's unmerited favor um, on uh, helpless sinners is going to be missing or worse, just redefined altogether. And the person at our door is spiritually blind as well. They'll hear the words that you have to say, but they've got no impact on their soul. They've never felt a blessed assurance of the gospel in their life and never understood the joy That's offered and and it's easy to become frustrated when you're in that conversation because you think how you've got the scriptures in front of you how can you not see how can you not see a plain reading of the gospel for yourself and john 8 12 which is up there says i'm the light of the world whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life and so those messengers of the cults they're still walking in darkness Because ultimately, like we've seen, they're not following Jesus. They're not following the real Christ. Those who follow Jesus as we're promised will have the light of life. And they'll discern what the scriptures have to say. But Jehovah's Witnesses follow not Jesus, but the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. They'll affirm the scriptures as far as it's translated correctly in their eyes. And interpreted by um, the Watchtower in New York. With their own altered translation. And their source of truth is not the scriptures themselves, but the studies that are sent to them on a weekly basis. And that's their sole source of truth. They don't study the scriptures openly and freely. They're actually forbidden, and this shocked me, they're actually forbidden to even Google the answers of their questions um, and use sources other than their own sources because it's considered a sin to do so. They believe that when you ask them questions and try and challenge them, that your speaking challenges is a direct test of the devil and that should it be resisted and not thought through carefully. So they'll shun it before it's even uh, landed correctly. And so Christians tonight, it's an encouragement to us, be thankful that if Jesus is right, if those who follow him of the light of life, then we've nothing to be afraid by seeking the truth. We can, we can actually turn over the stones when somebody challenges us with something that we've not heard before. Go and turn it over and find out for yourself. We can be transparent about what we do and don't understand and the firm foundation that God's given us. But sadly, others walk and follow the darkness of the the Watchtower's authority and are not allowed to go and search the truth for themselves. As for Mormons, uh, they follow the authority of the Church of Latter-day Saints and so much of what the church teaches, as you've seen already, flatly contradicts the Bible um, so that they have to see the scriptures being sort of corrupted over time. That won't stop them using the scripture sometimes to confirm their beliefs, but if scripture speaks against teaching they've got these days, they'll be prepared to dismiss it as just a corrupted bit or a bit that you've misunderstood. And so you can hopefully see from the second point then, it's really hard to break through to somebody who's wrapped up in layers and layers and layers and layers of false teaching and redefinitions. So let me share that verse on screen as we start to wrap up. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So what can we do when we approach these lost people? How can we lay aside our frustration at the false teaching and love the actual person who's wrapped up underneath it all? How do we overcome that overwhelming sense of deception? Well, I'm going to conclude, and as we start to get there, I think, and I hope it's come across from the start, that the simple message is not to swallow the textbooks and try to know everything that they actually believe, Because God gifts some people, no doubt, with a passion for scholarship and the Greek language and the history and opens doors for them to confront um, the cults on those big stages. And praise God that there's been countless examples of Christians who've done that work. But for us, if it's just meeting somebody at the door or seeing somebody at a stand in the town or working with somebody who's a colleague who happens to be in one of the cults, we don't need to set out to win an argument every day. It might be necessary for us to research and answer their questions and expose false teaching, of course, but it's better to really know one or two real deviations from the scripture and the gospel and stick to that. we have to have faith that, as Jesus said, God can draw anyone to himself. He can open blind eyes and use our simple words to shine a light to a blind person. And so if you could boldly share the scriptures that show who God is, like the ones we've looked at tonight, And if you could show them how somebody can be saved, then the bizarre issues that you could get stuck in, like the web of the 144,000 that they might want to talk to you about or the insistence on using the name Jehovah or the different levels of heaven in Mormonism or whatever it is, you'd you'd wash them away at the root without having to go into any of that. And so I think the message is if you have the opportunity, find something meaningful to talk about, uh, a meaningful point of deviation. And I hope that the study on the real Jesus is a start point is a useful one at that end. Find that one point of deviation and be prepared to lovingly and boldly share the truth of it. And so I'll be unpacking in the other studies some of the other points of deviation, but the series I hope I've made clear isn't about learning about the cults. I just think that it wouldn't edify the church at all. As we take our scriptures seriously, and if we walk in the light of what they say, then we'll be equipped for those spiritual battles that God places us in, and we should have faith in that. Because no matter what isms, you know, Mormonism, nihilism, atheism, agnosticism, Islamism, whatever it is, what we might come across, um, we can still remain like Peter and say to Christ, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I thought that's the case. Isn't that? Jesus and the gospel is the only thing that's worth clinging to in the argument in the discussion. Not because we want to beat people with the truth. But because we want to win them to Christ, if it's at all possible for us, and so I hope that that's a helpful starting point, and that you won't be put off coming to the to hear more. Let's prayer, Father God. I, I pray that um, as we leave this place tonight, Lord, that absolutely our hearts wouldn't be fixed on finding out more or delving into research or googling all the things that wacky things that people might believe, Lord deviations from the truth Lord but that we might truly be setting our hearts and our minds on um, glorifying Christ in our conversations with our unbelieving friends and family Lord I pray Lord that you'd help us to have a real love for those who um, are spiritually blinded Lord by dark forces and understand Lord that it is a real spiritual blindness Lord it's not only a, an unwillingness to listen Lord but a, a deep um, sin issue in the lives of all of our unbelieving um, people that we come across. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you just us, embolden us with the gospel, Lord. We're thinking about reaching out to our friends and family and loved ones and uh, colleagues. And I pray that this truly would just fit into that context, Lord. That we'd love the people that we meet who might diverge from the truth in ways that would shock us and make us feel frustrated, Lord, horrified even. I pray that you'd use us in simple ways for your glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen just wanted to sort of see as I'm concluding, I suppose just a, a little caveat, it's not really part of what I wanted to say, but just in terms of where we'll best spend our time next, so you've kind of got a chance to think about it. Um, so I thought that the next study that we would do um, would focus um, more closely, rather than dealing with Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, I've said, we'll study fundamentally who does God declare himself to be, and in the light of that, it confronts Mormonism quite clearly. And then the third part, which is how can man be saved and in the light of that, it covers what others believe, witnesses, Catholicism, all sorts of groups. So the other last thing, if you've got any interest in, for the study side of it, some of the scriptures, because I know there's like masses of stuff up there, do just let us know. I'm happy to, uh, to share anything really with you. All right, thanks very much.